You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Monday, all you whitetail freaks out there and hunting freaks and bow hunting freaks and anything. Uh, Man, I'm starting to see pictures of guys out west with antelope and velvet mule deer and even some of the western states already have elk season open so the uh the news feed is starting to show that there's a lot of people out there being successful and this is what i love i love not only doing podcasts about success stories but i just love flipping through facebook and other social media platforms uh there's a new one um what's it called uh go wild i think it's like 100 for hunting anyway i love flipping through all that stuff and <laughs> looking at the success pictures man I, I i i daydream about uh other people's uh i guess trophy photos uh, when, when i see a trophy photo posted i kind of imagine myself in that person's place so i want to go out and do all these hunts so i'm jacked um i'm excited for my elk hunt uh, I'm pumped up for it, and uh, I'm like today I went on a four-mile hike with uh, I think it was like 75 pounds on my back. I went with my daughter, so it took a little bit longer, but she was a champ. She finished it, and by the time I got done with it, man, I was gassed. Uh, the legs are toast, uh, which is good. I mean, that's that's the training that you want to do is just wear the legs out and hope that when I get to 10,000 feet, they perform at some level but uh they won't and i'll die but at least i'll have fun dying anyway (laughs) today's podcast man we are joined 
by a gentleman named Michael, Michael, Michael Soberai, and he lives in Indiana. And last year he had a one hell of a dream season. Uh, he went to North Carolina, shot a velvet buck. Then he made a trip out to Nebraska, shot a slammer mule deer. Then he makes a trip back home on a on a piece of property that he has access to in Indiana, and he shot a super slammer gagger whitetail. Uh, like 175-ish or something like that. Man, that is, it's a giant. And you'll have to go to the Facebook page to check the pictures out uh, of his success last year. Um, I'm a little bit jealous. I'll be honest. I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, maybe be, I'm jealous because of his six weeks of vacation that he gets. Or I'm jealous that he's probably just a better hunter than me. So uh, one hell of a, of a podcast today sharing all the success from uh, Michael's 2017 season. And before we get into today's podcast, man, I really want to take a time to let you know how impressed I am with ripcord arrow rests. Now, there's a lot of products out there who say they do certain things. And until you use them, you're not sure on whether or not that they follow through with their claims. I am very, very hard on my hunting equipment. Dropping it, you know, beating it up, using it for years, and probably, probably not maintaining it the way I should. And mud, ice, wet, everything. My rip, I, I, I can say I've used their brand of products longer than any other product that I've used, and it performs every single time so please go to ripcordarrowrest.com take some time look at all the products they offer and you know if you don't trust what i have to say then don't trust what i have to say but i am a huge fan of their their uh rests their air drop away arrow rests uh so go check their products out is all i'm gonna say um now it's time for a hunter success story with Michael, Michael, God, I can't even talk today. I'm so jacked up. Or it could be the coffee and exhaustion. So coffee plus exhaustion. Anyway, go check out today's. Okay, okay, Johnson, get it together. Now we are going to do a podcast. <laughs> All right, on the podcast with me today, I am joined by Michael Soberai. How you doing, man? Good. How are you, bud? I'm doing good. Doing good. Now, how this podcast came about is I actually reached out to you because uh, I, I guess we follow each other on Facebook or whatnot, and you posted a pick collage of all the deer that you've killed uh, from last year, all your archery kills, and I'm just like, man, that is one hell of a season, and uh, so I figured I'd uh, give you a call and uh, get you on the podcast. You said yes, and here we are, but... Before we get into today's podcast, why don't you tell everybody where you're from and what do you do for a living? Um, I'm originally from Florida, but I moved up to Indiana. I live in northwest Indiana, right in the tri-state area where Indiana and Ohio and Michigan come together. And I'm an automotive mechanical engineer for a living. Gotcha. So what does that entail? Um, I design parts for anti-vibration systems for uh, a Ford F-150 trucks and several other trucks and I 
pretty much help design the machines and help maintenance guys when they can't figure out a mechanical issue with the machine. Wow. So you design the part and you kind of design the, the, the machine that makes the part. Yep. Exactly. Wow. That's pretty technical. Uh, did you have to go to like some special schooling for that? Yep. Uh, so I went to college. I got a mechanical engineering degree and then kind of stuck up here. Nice. 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 Cool. Cool. Well, last or so last season you had what a lot of people would call a dream season. And I think what we'll do today is we'll just kind of, we'll kick it off at, from in chronological order when it started and, uh, when it ended And the first picture I see here, the deer has velvet antlers and that means it's gotta be fairly early. Uh, to kill a buck with velvet ants, antlers. So uh, where did you kill this velvet velvet antlered buck at? Uh, the first velvet deer was in North Carolina, of all places. North Carolina? Yes. <laughs> and now, when when people say, hey, let's go plan an out-of-state hunt, uh, they don't say, let's go to North Carolina. I mean, I've never heard it before. What What's so special about North Carolina? Um. It was one of those where one of my good buddies lives in North Carolina, and I Facebook all places actually helped me get this hunt set up there. I said, I dream of mine was to shoot a deer in full velvet, and he messaged my buddy messaged me and said, Come here, North Carolina, because we have big deer. And it took me a while just being hesitant, just because, like you said, North Carolina of all places, but right, um, started going there. And the guy, my buddy was just sharing trail cam pictures and started hunting there and just kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. So what's the terrain like in North Carolina? I mean, what were you, when I think of North Carolina, I think of, uh, Appalachian mountains and I think of like pine forests. What, uh, what was the terrain like? There was a little bit of both of that really. Um, I mean, the, the area I was hunting had, it had farmland, but it was big rolling hills with deep big pines so i mean and it was it's a little bit of everything and then there's there were certain other farms that were just flat oaks so i mean i it was a little bit of every type of terrain you could think of cool cool so um it was on a a private farm right correct okay all right so you uh you got in contact with your buddy he kind of helped you set the, the hunt up now what uh what date did you end up killing this deer on? I believe that was September 12th. September 12th. Okay, so really easy. When did when does the season start in North Carolina? The second Saturday of September. Okay, all right. So second Saturday of September. You shot your deer on um, the 12th of September. What, uh, I mean, were you uh, sitting over a food plot? Were you sitting in kind of a pinch point? Why don't you describe the location uh, and why you were sitting in that location? Um, in North Carolina, it's legal to hunt over bait, and a buddy baits these spots, so we were sitting over corn piles. Okay. So, I mean, they, being early season, they were bedded really close to these bait piles that he had established out there and kind of kept rotating through different bait piles um with it being started the second saturday of the of the september a lot of the deer's velvets are already starting to fall off so we kind of had to jump at the main goal was to shoot a full deer, a deer in full velvet so we kind of had to keep jumping properties just because 
the deers I was going after kept losing their velvet. So it was one of those things where uh, you were, what were you doing? Just uh, d- looking at trail camera pictures all the time. And I guess how many days, yeah, how many days were you down there hunting? Um, I think last year I, was there, I think I was there for six days. Okay. So you were there six days and then let's see, six days and you were bouncing around from uh, basically bait pile to bait pile, checking trail cameras. And at, I mean, did you go in there and have a deer targeted and then have to switch yes, off that deer? deer yes. I, I originally was going in after a really, really big eight point. I was in full velvet and actually seen him the first morning, but, um, just they couldn't get a shot at him. And come the next day, he was already, he ended up being hard horned. And it just, that kind of was the theme that every single deer I was going after, they didn't lose the velvet from the day of that I was hunting them. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then finally, uh, you ran into, uh, you ran into this buck that still had his velvet. I mean, was this a target buck <laughs> while you were down there or was yeah. it just, my goal is to shoot a velvet buck and I don't care what it, what it scores. Nope. It, our goal is, my goal every year is shoot a, shoot a mature deer um and this was one of the mature deers but there were bigger deer that were just as old as he was that we were going after and he was kind of one of the back burner deer just because i mean he was he was just full velvet old six-pointer that just never turned into much yeah and i you know i can look at his head uh and his body and he's uh he's got a decent sized body what um what were the deer doing uh because you know sometimes i've you know i've talked to some guys um and they're like, you know, hunting over bait isn't as easy as everyone says it is, you know, or everyone thinks it is because, you know, the deer get smart and then they'll circle downwind of the bait pile and, you know, someone will get busted or so. So how did you hunt a bait pile? I've never done that before. Actually, these deer are literally the hardest deer I've ever hunted in my life. I've traveled almost everywhere deer hunt and these deer were just always so skittish. Um, always circle downwind, always try to get downwind. If, if any tiniest little thing, movement or anything, they would scatter and take off running. So, I mean, it, it's always been a hard hunt every time I, year I've gone there. This is actually the first full velvet deer I've shot there in okay. three, or, three or four years. Okay. So, um, this, this actually that first buck we were going, I was going for, I seen him coming in and he circled, come did a completely loop downwind of me. And got my got my downwind part of, and just did not come in afterwards. Knew something wasn't quite right. Wow, so and, they're they're not dumb. Yeah. No, not at all. Like I said, these deer, I mean, they know where these tree stands are at. They know where these bait piles are at. And my buddy, he rotates the bait piles and where the tree stands are every single year, just because these deer learn it. Right. right. I mean, it's it's amazing how smart these deer were. I when he was telling me we were hunting over bait pile, I literally thought it would sit there and shoot shoot a dumb deer and it wasn't the case at all right like this deer it was actually a morning sit and i had deer on me all morning long and i was waiting for this one deer to come in that's i think at the point i had five or six bucks in front of me feeding down the bait pile and then he finally came in and he knew something wasn't quite quite right and I was constantly trying to get my bow drawn back on him, and every time I was just about ready to do it, he would take off running back into the woods and come back out, and, and it was just, it was just, it was, it was stressful there. I mean, and finally, the fourth time that he came back out was when he finally gave me a shot opportunity. So, 
they they were hesitant to come into the bait pile because they knew they just knew something was wasn't right. I I, I guess I mean the wind was perfect and I, the direction he came from I I didn't think he came was able to get downwind of me if I didn't. I mean, they all came out into the bait pile, but they just were so skittish, and it would constantly clear the bait pile every couple couple seconds. Wow. It's probably because they've been hunted over bait before, huh? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So as this buck comes in, and it sounds like uh, he scattered, comes back, scatters, come back. Now, finally, as he's, you know, getting, I guess, co- somewhat comfortable at the bait pile, why don't you walk us through how the rest of that uh, – that uh, encounter played out with you ultimately harvesting him? Uh, when he finally came back out the last time, like I said, he had several other, he was in his bachelor group, so he had several other bucks with him, and I kept trying to wait until he was clear of these other deer, so I had a clear shot, and it just constantly seemed like a deer was in front of him, a deer was in front, and at that moment, they all scattered, and he took one bound real quick and stopped in the open there was nothing around i had the, I had the bow drawn back and it was a 23 yard shot and made a perfect double lung shot on him and it just it was just one of those, he scattered it instead of fully clearing the, the opening that i had to shoot at he he stopped in it for once <laughs> so you you honestly didn't even shoot this deer over bait I, I mean, yes, I mean, he came in i didn't but yeah he, he came in it's not like he was uh head down feeding in it right no, no. Yeah. Okay. Wow. No. So just he he happened to stop in an opening that was twenty three yards away from your stand, and uh, yeah, you, you got yep. him. Exactly. Cool. And this was a super thick pines. Even when he ran off, I mean, just because it's being pines, I couldn't even hear him run off or anything. It was crazy and so thick. You had no clue which direction he went. And... So, yeah, I mean, good shot, though. You were able to recover him fairly easy. It was a good shot, and but there wasn't the greatest of blood trail. We actually walked by him. It's so thick down there, and we actually walked by him five or ten times and never, never stood where he was at. And what he ended up doing was going out and doubling back up, and we walked by him multiple times, and we ended up getting a buddy who had a um, – attracting dog and the dog we actually forced the dog right by the deer again think trying to get him to the last blood that we knew was at why and the dog went crazy and we kind of ignored him trying to force him thinking he was trying to chase another deer and as soon as we put him in the start of blood tray, he went right back and we kept yanking him back and finally buddy's like maybe the deer's over there and we let the dog go and he went straight to him yeah the deer only went 75 or 80 yards yeah but it's just so so thick in there that it you, we walked right by him and you had to virtually step on him and know where he was at. Man, that's awesome. Uh, so velvet, I mean, what what's it what's it like shooting a velvet deer? Is it any different than a hardhorn deer, or is it a completely know, unique experience? The the tracking, or not the tracking, the carrying them out, getting them out of the woods is the hardest part because you obviously want to get it mounted with the velvet, on, so you have to protect that. I mean, it's so fragile. Yeah, yeah. It. We, I ended up buying one of the deer cards, but still I had to put, I took my shirt off. I wrapped it, protected it, and you're trying to – it's so thick that it's hitting everything. So you're trying to make sure it doesn't hit everything, and it's 100 degrees out there, so you're burning up in sweat. I wow. Mean, 
So you, yeah. what was there any type of special care once you got him out into the woods? Because I've heard everything from, you know, put it on ice to inject it with uh, something. I talked to my taxidermist, and he told me, put it on ice, get it frozen if I can, and get it to him right away, and he'll handle everything else. Gotcha. So, so is this taxidermist? Oh, he had a deep freeze. Okay. So, so my buddy had deep freeze. everything deep freezer. Got it frozen. I threw it in the cooler in back of my truck full of ice, and I went straight from North Carolina straight to my taxidermist. So how, how many miles is that? I know it's a 10-hour drive. Okay, 10-hour drive. So were you getting nervous at all the, the time that it was in a cooler, or were you pretty confident that he was going to stay he was going to stay cold in your cooler? I was definitely nervous. I mean, every time I stopped to get gas, I would get back there and chuck it. it I didn't feel the velvet slipping off or anything like that. So, I mean, I constantly checked. I actually was nervous, but it, it ended, up, ended up staying in a good condition the whole way through. Cool, man. So once you get it to the tax uh, taxidermist, uh, do you happen to know if they have to do any special type of care for it when they uh, when they mount it? I bl- I believe my taxidermist injects it. Injects it. Okay. Yes. Is it formaldehyde? From what I understand, it's the big. Yes. From okay. what I understand, the biggest thing is trying to get all the blood out and then get it injected or something along that line. Gotcha, man. That's crazy. Is now from a from a cost standpoint, was that an extra cost on that? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's an extra cost because it's more work for him not to do. Gotcha. How how significant? A uh, hundred dollars. A hundred extra bucks. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, so is shooting a velvet buck something that you feel like you want to do every year or? Maybe now that you have one under your belt, you're going to do something different. Um, I plan on making this trip North Carolina every year. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge challenge to hunt these deer, and I don't think it has to, it has to be a velvet deer. Like I said before, my, my tip list would always constantly shrink because the deer are coming out of velvet. Right. So having to be a velvet deer won't be a mandatory now. But, I mean, going down this North Carolina, it's, it's such a blast to hunt a different type of deer. And, just it's a new challenge learning the properties learning where to set up i mean you can't just throw a bait pile out in a single spot and hope the deer to come by you have to find where they're bedding at where they're normally moving through so you kind of set it up to get them close to that area gotcha cool so you were successful uh first hunt of the year north carolina then after north carolina what was your next stop uh, next stop was just hunting my local farms in Indiana, Ohio, Michigan. Okay. Uh, so I hunted, I hunted there for a couple weeks there. So, uh, Michigan, Ohio starts end of September there. So I, I get a little bit of a jump, um, constantly checking trail cameras, seeing if I could get any, find a hit list deer. Um, last year was just one of those, most of my local farms just did not have what I was hoping to harvest. Yeah. So I kind of started getting on the phone, trying to set up hunts other states and trying to find other properties to hunt at because it just didn't happen what i was hoping to harvest in my local areas okay and then the next trip was nebraska okay so when you say when you say you were looking for hit listers on on uh you do you have a lease or do you have own a farm what's the story there Uh, i've got several properties i've got permission on and then i've got a lease down in southern indiana 
Okay. All right. So those, your local, because uh, you said you live in northeast Indiana, uh, and it sounds like uh, they weren't showing you anything, uh, like anything worth chasing. No, I just had several, exactly. I just had several good three and a half and four and a half, but just nothing. I was really hoping to harvest that season. Okay. So uh, this, this lease in southern Indiana, is this like a, a property that you just wait until the rut to go hunt, or do you ever make trips down there early season to maybe jump in a tree stand? Once in a while, I'll make trips down there, but typically I wait till the rut just to leave it alone because it's a smaller lease that typically has hard hunting pressure all around it. Gotcha. All right. So it's more of a strategy to stay out of there then. Correct. Okay. Correct. It's, all right. it's just a, it's all woods. So, I mean, there's nowhere to get in and out without really stressing or bothering the deer. So gotcha. when you do hunt the deer, learn it. So I kind of just wait till the best opportunity time to hunt them. Okay. So you hunted around home basically for a little while that, you know, there's nothing really to hunt as far as what you were looking for so then you decided to make a trip out to nebraska was this a last minute planning and preparation hunt or did you have this hunt planned i had this hunt planned um I, i've been going there for the last five years now so it's just something i go out there every single season okay kind of i try to attack it during the october lull around here because the mule deer i seem to have great luck in finding them during that point so it's gotcha. a good good point to leave my property alone not overpressure them and go hunt somewhere else gotcha so whereabouts in nebraska uh are you are you chasing these mule deer at uh the northwest region and the sand hills sand hills um and we talked a little bit about that in the in the intro so like where i hunt uh where i've been hunting before uh, is the southern part i guess you would say of the sand hills region and uh, man it is some absolutely gorgeous country out there absolutely and when i started going out there i was all hesitant just knowing it was the sand hills didn't know it was going to be as beautiful as it was yeah yeah absolutely so no trees out there uh and exactly and so it's completely different than hunting these whitetails that we're all used to in the uh midwest so Talk to me first of first of all a little bit about how you know you've gone out there for the last five years and how you've kind of I don't know learned how to hunt these deer a completely different way because it's spot and stock out there. So talk to us about that learning curve and then ultimately what you did to end up harvesting uh, this beautiful mule deer that you had. Um, it actually started. The year before I went to Nebraska, um, I actually went with an outfitter in Kansas. I drew a mule deer tag in Kansas, and I went, learned from him. I mean, he drove me around, kind of taught me how mule deer behaved, what they did, how to hunt them. And um, Kansas is just such a hard area, a hard state to draw a mule deer tag, where in Nebraska you can get them over the counter. Mm-hmm. And finally started doing some, after I realized I wasn't going to draw Every single year in Kansas, I've started researching Nebraska and kind of looked up local outfitters around there, seeing where they're hunting, kind of areas they're hunting, and started studying maps online. Um, picked out as many public land spots that looked good to me, that had food around, good cover, some sort of cover around, anything just looked different that I thought would hold the deer and just 
started making trips out there. Um, first couple of trips I made out there were just the scout um, during the off seasons, kind of learn the areas. And then um, first two or three years I went out, I was unsuccessful, but I learned, constantly learned, um, learning how to do sneak up on them. I, I know the first couple of years I kind of always, you always watch the hunting shows. That's kind of where you learn to do some of your hunts. And you always see someone trying to grunt or get a mule deer to stand up. And they always say, they always stop and turn around and look. And I tell you what, every mule deer I saw, it, I grunted. It took off like a lightning bolt and they <laughs> never stopped to look back. <laughs> I oh, was so confused. And every time you watch, they always say the mule deer looks back. And that was never the case. None of them ever looked back. Right. So right. It, I learned to set up on them and just be patient. Wait till they stand up themselves. All right. So the question I have for you is when I went out to Nebraska in the sand hills, I saw a lot of mule deer does. I saw some whitetail bucks and I saw whitetail does, but I never saw one mule deer buck. Now, and that was in mid September or early, the second week of September. So my question, my question for you is, how do you locate these mule deer in that in that uh, terrain? During that time period, you're going to see your mule deer does by themselves in the bucks in their own bachelor groups. Um, so I guess it depends on the time of the year that on where you're going to find them at. Um, when I go, they're slowly starting to run up and try to herd up the does. So when I'm during the time frame I'm there, you're looking for those does because that's typically where you'll find those bucks with them. Okay. All right. And where, where are these does and, uh, these does and these bucks at, I mean, from a, how far from the food are they, is there a specific terrain feature that you're looking for? What I look for is food and find a biggest hill I can find in the area. Uh, all those are slowly rolling terrains and these deer just disappear. So I try to be set up on some big hill areas I can see a long ways coming from the food to figure out where they're where they're going and coming from and watch them for a day or two before I try setting up an ambush hunt on them okay so it sounds to me like you're you're doing a lot of glassing before you oh yes okay okay a lot of glass yes, absolutely so what are the food sources out there um I know I'm still learning that. I know I've seen them eating a lot of in the wheat fields. Um, there are some wheat crop fields out there. And then they graze on all the grass and stuff that does grow out there. But the typical the main main food sources I try to set up on are the wheat fields. Okay. I got you. So now uh, the question is, like, when you get out there, right, you've uh, – like, what's the strategy then? Okay, you found – let's say you found a food source – and you're trying you're you're putting in your your time glassing what are you doing when you locate uh, a buck that you want to go chase once i locate a buck i want to chase it's watching the exact trails they're going to where they're bedding at how long they're bedding for at these spots because these deer typically a lot of times they'll bed at a spot but then as the sun moves um like you said there's no trees there's very little shade there so as the sun move they they constantly get up and shift to different beds okay so it's kind of figuring out exactly where they're bedding at or find a spot that they're walking by that i know i can hide and successfully get a shot at them but most of the time it's 
figuring out exactly where they're bedding at, the multiple different beds, and setting up within bow range of those areas. Gotcha, gotcha. So, are you so are you trying to get them on the move, or are you trying to get them in their bed? Most times, I try to get them on their bed. Um, I've, I've tried several times, still trying to figure out ways to get them on the move, but it's been so difficult, and they do kind of sort of change just slightly every once in a while which trails they walk to and from so it's a lot easier just get them in the bed right okay so so is this one of those things where you get out there early in the morning and you're in a position to where you're you're glassing them come off the food source and then what what are you doing from that point um when i'm just I'm learning what they're doing. Once I've, once I've watched them for a day or two, if they constantly do the same pattern, then the next day I, what I do is I actually set up as close as I can to where they're bedding at. Okay. And just wait for them to ambush them. Okay. All right. So you're, you're trying to get them into their, in their bed. And then you, what did you do for this particular guy? Did you watch him bed down and then make a move? This one I set up in the areas where I thought they were bedding, and he ended up bedding 100 yards away from there. So I just sat there laying down waiting for him to put his head down, and I I completely circled around him trying to get set up and just slowly sneaking in, um, came over the hill. And right when I came over the hill, he kind of caught some movement but wasn't sure what it was, and he stood up, and I was able to quickly get off a shot at him. Gotcha. Okay. So this was public land, right? Yes, sir. All right. So what uh did you run into any other hunters out there while you were while you were chasing these deer? Um some years I do. Um I think the, the harder thing about I've had experience out there is the cattle pressure. Okay. Um the hunting pressure typically if you see someone set up on or parked right at some of these properties, I just completely bypass and go to another spot. It's the cattle pressure that seems to be what really affects my the deer move that I've seen out there because of how much they graze and the grass is where they hide at. So if they overgraze these pastures, it forces the deer go somewhere else to go bed. Okay. Now, do they have crop circles out there? Yes. Okay. I guess. Uh, you mean by where, where sprinklers are sprayed at? Yeah, those big, those big pivot sprinklers. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. And yes. is that where a majority yes. of the crop fields are? Are are those big pivots? Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Yes. So, so when you you know now that you've been out to Nebraska, what, this was your fifth year. This last year was your fifth year. Yep. Okay. This uh, fifth year um, was this your first time that you were successful? Uh, in all those trips, uh, second time, second time. Okay. Second time. All right. So what was, what was the caliber of deer, uh, on your, on the first time? The first time I was successful there, it was a really, really old deer that was on his downhill slide. And I think he only scored in 120. Okay. In the 120s. And I mean, he, he had huge, huge mass, but just in tall time, but it just wasn't, I don't know. I mean, you've seen how those old bully, grumpy deer are. I mean, yeah, it's just he was just one of those deer. He had no no teeth. His head was huge. He was over three hundred pounds. Wow, but, wow. Yeah, it that, was. 
He was humongous. That would be awesome. All right. So, so when you go out there, are you now looking for, uh, like, what are you looking for as far as a caliber of deer? I, because what I'm looking at, this picture is a stud. I would consider that a stud mule deer. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for when I go out there. I mean, I don't, I don't see a lot of mule deer, so I kind of, kind of picky, but I'm not, I guess. Yeah. I'm still trying to, still trying to learn how to do this. So, um, I look for a deer that looks mature to me. Um, I don't still, like I said, still trying to learn even how to read a mule deer. And I mean, these deer are so huge body wise. I still have a hard time kind of aging them. Right. Right. So then the quant, the quantity of deer when you're out there, what are the, I mean, are you just seeing a a handful at a time or are you seeing a lot? Um, I think this, that all goes back to the cattle pressure. Last year I saw mule deer and bucks all over the place or two years ago. But then this past year I might've only saw seven mule deer in a week time frame. Really? I, 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 I think a large part of that is the, the cattle grazing pressure. I mean, I in the, the farm I sh- shot my mule there two years ago. I saw mule there all over that, and this year the cattle completely wiped out that property where it was just next to nothing there, and I didn't see a single mule there, no tracks, no nothing. Wow. Okay. All right. So walk us through then. Uh, I know you, you mentioned it just a little bit, but walk us through the actual, the strategy and the actual harvest of this mule deer. Uh, I, I spotted this deer in the, I believe it was the third day of the hunt. And he was with two other mule deer that were really nice mule deer. Um, they were a little bit smaller than he were, was, and they had a group of seven does with them. And, and I, I constantly, would see him i i believe i knew what wheat field he was coming from but he was long away from that field by the time daylight was coming around but i spotted him from a long ways away and each day i kept moving a little bit closer just kind of glass and figure out exactly where his bed net and um on the on the third third day of watching him i kind of saw this big goalie where they all kept disappearing and bedding into so that next morning i was out there I was actually set up in the spot where he was bedding at two hours before he, before even daylight, just waiting for them to come on through. And maybe 45 minutes after daylight, I saw them start coming, coming my way. And for some reason that day, they ended up stopping short of that goalie, um, bedded down over off to another hillside. So I did a complete loop around and, um, I thought they were further down in the goalie, but they were a lot closer up on top of that goal. That, that hillside there and as soon as I peeked up I saw his antler tips there and I crip and drew back because he started standing up and I guessed a shot at 35 yards and it ended up being a perfect shot and he hopped off and had no clue what happened and fell maybe 30 40 yards from where I shot him wow so how so how far away okay you went in there two hours early and you were waiting for the sun to come up and then you noticed them when you first saw them that morning how far away were they from you 
probably four or five hundred yards away. Okay, so you were in a position to where you. What were you doing? Watching them come off of a, the food source. Yes. Okay. Yep. Now, how far away was the food source from where you were at? The food source was probably eight nine hundred yards away from where I was set up at. Okay. All right. So you were just catching them come back to bed then. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Cool. All right. So you ended up. Uh, um, you ended up uh, getting uh, getting this this buck and uh, looped all the way around. And uh, what's it like? I mean, you shot a you shot a hundred and twenty incher, but this one's this one's much bigger. What's that like? Being able to change your setting, right? It's not a it's not a midwestern hunt. It's a mm-hmm. it's. I mean, I'm not going to call it a complete Western hunt, but it is, I mean, it's a mule deer in a completely different environment. And then being successful after years of failure, what's that like? Oh man, I walked up to it and I just stood next to it, just speechless, just staring at it. Um, I, I knew he was a good mule deer. I didn't realize he was as big as he was. Um, part of the deceiving part of them is their ears are just so dang big. That typically you see a white tail, they're, they're out to the ears, they're 18, 19, 20 inches wide, where this one is a lot wider. And just like so I just stood over him, just speechless how, how big he was. I, I didn't know he had the mass he did, the time length, and just I didn't, I didn't know how big he was. And um, just kind of stood over for a while, and then, then finally I just got it just broke down, whatever, and called my, called my buddies, telling them, tell, celebrating with them. Um, typically go out on these trips solo there so on the phone it's kind of my a celebration moment with all my buddies there so this was a completely solo hunt on public ground and you were successful yes sir man that's all that's probably got to be a good feeling so now that you're able to uh harvest this buck so it's what two years in a row of being successful correct okay so it's i mean are you fairly confident that the next year you're you're going to be able to go out this upcoming year you're going to be able to make this same trip and and be successful again i'd like to say that but i still feel like i'm so new into learning how to hunt these mule deer that i can't um and there's there's so much there's just so many limiting factors there like the the cattle pressure being so far away from there I, I don't know exactly what the cattle are doing so i have to try to pick out so many spots before i get there that right it's I w- if I, if they were on the same same properties or kind of same areas i say i could say yes but hunting two different farms each year i mean it's it's so it's so hard to say yes on something like that yeah absolutely absolutely wow well that's uh that's a bucket list hunt of mine is to do exactly what you did and uh be able to chase mule deer in, in that even that type of terrain as well uh i just man i envy you in, in a way <laughs> i'm just i'm just lucky sometimes <laughs> <laughs> very humble as well now you're i mean so you shot a velvet buck check you went out to uh nebraska shot, shot a slammer muley check but your season's not over because you, you no. know the you head back home right and i'm sure you probably hunted uh close to home off and on a little bit and um oh i forgot about the mule deer what date did you harvest this mule deer on 
mid it was mid October though. Yeah. Mid October, yeah. Okay. What was the temperature uh, out there? Just curious. I actually got lucky and timed the cold front just perfect, I guess. Um it was in it was in the in mid sixties. Okay. As a high. Gotcha. So All right, so now we're talking whitetails again. We're back. We're back in Indiana. When do you typically start? I mean, do you have like a rut vacation that you take every year? Yes, yes. Um, I I try to start off October twenty fifth, and I I hunt till November fifteenth. Wow, buddy, you take a big chunk. <laughs> oh, I do absolutely. I work. My my boss knows I'm a huge outdoorsman, so. We try to schedule all my projects, and I do extra hours all during the off season. So right. I can take off so much during the hunt season. Right, right. And I'll tell you what, man, it, it's busting your ass for for the guys who hear that. You know, twenty fifth to the fifteenth every year, they say, "Oh man, that's three whole weeks of uh, of hunting." Yep, it is three whole weeks. But I have a feeling that you you bust your ass at home being a husband and daddy. Uh, and put in all the time there and at work that allows you to take these trips and take that time off. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I'm fortunate to have a pretty amazing um, wife over here that takes care of the kids there. So um, same way with her, I tell her, give me a list of honey to-do list before hunting season. I'll make sure I have all that done. Uh, I try to schedule family vacations. We actually were just came back this morning from a vacation, family vacation. So Nice. Um, try to schedule all that. So keep it. I try to keep everyone happy and try to give them all as much time as possible. Because then, once hunting season comes, I'm traveling there. Yeah, absolutely. So on on this farm in southern Indiana, um, how many acres is it? Uh, Eighty. Eighty acres. Okay. So did you go there right away? Because based off the picture, I'm looking at the background. A lot of green lot of uh like fallish type colors was this did you shoot this buck in october no it was actually november 2nd i believe it was okay all right november 2nd and how many days have you been hunting on that property before this guy and did you know that this guy was in the neighborhood it was the first day the first day the first day, the first sit on this farm for this season. <laughs> I hate your guts, dude. I hate your guts. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, when I came back from vacation, I hunted Ohio quite a bit and Michigan, um, trying to check all cameras, trying to see if anything was new was moving through or any of that stuff. And it just, it was, it just wasn't happening on any of my farms. So I said, I'm heading down and we'll see what happens. And, it, it, yeah, it, it was. <laughs> I, I luck was on my side that morning. Right, right, okay. I mean, it was, I brought I brought the stand in, the steps, and it hung hung and shot him. <laughs> so it was a it was a hanging hunt right right there first day. Yes, sir. Okay, so the question, I mean, d- did you have him on trail camera? Did you check any trail cameras to know that that deer was in the area? So, like, were you going in specifically for him? I was not going in for him. He, I did have him on camera. I didn't know it until after I shot him and then checked the cameras. So but did you yeah, did you even I, I, check I, your trail cameras on that property before you started I, hunting? I had he. I had pictures of him 
October 20th, and but I hadn't checked the cameras since early October. Um, it's about a six hour, five about five hour drive for me to there, so I don't get that much opportunity to go out there and check cameras. So um, when I got there to that morning and instead of checking cameras first, I wanted to try to get a hunt in, being that it was November 2nd. I hung a, hung a set in this this big oak flat that had a big nice saddle with him. It's really hilly down there, and he come by chasing a doe that morning. Okay, and <laughs> just like that, <laughs> it, it literally was just like that. I I got set. I mean, I knew I was going to make noise. So same situations. I get I get I get there so early. I hang the set, give give the woods an hour or two to calm down, and pretty much as soon as I got set up in the dark, I heard a buck chasing a doe and it come flying by me and the moon bright was pretty bright that at that point. I think it was three quarters, four or something like that. And he come chasing the doe right by me and all morning long, he kept chasing, chasing and chasing. And I was just waiting for legal shooting time. He even, I couldn't tell what he was just waiting for legal shooting time. And finally it was getting close. And I told myself, if he comes by again, I'm going to hopefully get a shot here. And of course he doesn't come by anymore. Um, I got nervous there thinking that he done chased her off the, off the property or somewhere else. And about 930, he come by chasing her one more time. And, and he, well, I mean, describe the setup. I, I want to know like the type of terrain uh, that you were sitting, sitting on. Um, this was a big, this big, almost, almost calling a mountain. It was so big that's on there. And it just had a big saddle right there, and um, a saddle with a bunch of oak oak trees all around it, and it kind of just kind of funneled them between the big hillsides there. Right, right, and uh, and it just so how many deer did you see that uh, morning? Just that one doe and that one buck? Uh, no, I saw four or five does, and then I saw two. Two two and a half and a couple year and a half old bucks. Gotcha. Okay. And then when when legal shooting light happened, how long from you know when it got light to when he ultimately you you feel that he came back with chasing this doe? Uh, two or three hours. I mean, I kept hearing bucks chasing does down on on the far side of the hillside there next to me. But he never came back through toward me. Um, so, and then it kind of got quiet down. I'm guessing that they bedded down over there and took a nap or whatever. And two or three hours later after sunrise is when he came back through. So let me see. November 2nd, somewhere around 9.30? Yep. Wow. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> dude do you yeah have, that's a that's an amazing that's an amazing buck so just for everybody who's listening um what did that buck score i uh, scored right at 175 jesus is that is that the biggest white tail you've ever shot oh absolutely by a long shot by a long shot uh, the big score that was a, was a 161 okay okay man that is a giant. And what is he? He's a mainframe 10 with a split. Or is he yes, a nine? Mainframe 10 with a split G. 
He's a 10 with a split G2. 10 with a split G2. Okay. Man, that's awesome. 175. That's a, a very beautiful buck. What uh, what, do you, what do you think he was for an age? Because he looks old. Uh, I believe he was five and a half. Five and a half. Okay. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So knowing what you know now about that that farm, how, how long have you had that lease? Uh, three years now. Okay. Three years. Are there any other deer on that property that you're looking to chase, uh, this year? Yes. I got a picture of a deer bigger and bigger than the deer I harvested this past year. You, and, and yeah. are you going to do the same exact thing? Wait until like that, that late October, early November time frame to jump back in and go after him again? Um, I'm not sure yet because I got to keep an eye on drill cameras, but I'm getting pictures. I'm going to get pictures of him this summer. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if he's, if he's still going to be moving during daylight during the summer, um, he's bedded, I know he's bedded really close to his feed field here. So, I mean, if he, it's, it's soybeans, so if soybeans are still green. I might try going after him early. Gotcha. If not, I mean, I'll wait till the, I'll wait till the rut. Awesome. Awesome. Well, now what do you got planned for this upcoming year? This upcoming season. Uh, upcoming season, I'm gonna start off in North Carolina once again. Um, the year I'm going after is mid one forties, upper one fifty nine pointer. Okay. <laughs> or you got the hitless bucks for there. Um, then I'm gonna run. I'm gonna come back and my Ohio farm has got here. I got a shooter on there that I definitely want to try to go after this season. So I'll probably go after him late September. And then, once again, run back to Nebraska. Try to go after another mule deer. How many days do you stay um, in Nebraska? I I plan on 10 days is what I take vacation time for on that trip. Okay, 10 days. All right, cool. All right, so 10 days um, in Nebraska. And then, and then what? And then I'll come back and start hunting Indian Ohio, Michigan again. Oh, gotcha. So, gotcha. All my other hunts will be for other kind of other species. I've got a trip to Arkansas for snow geese, a trip to Florida for a gator. Oh, really? Yes, sir. Cool, cool. So, uh, what's I mean, what's what are some of your bucket list hunts? I'm just kind of curious. I mean, you 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 bounce around a lot. It's, I mean, it seems like you you put a lot of time and energy and money into you know, traveling places to hunt. Uh, what are some of the other places that you, maybe either you're collecting preference points for or you're planning uh, for right now? Uh, right now, I'm working on trying to set up a hunt in New Zealand for Red Stag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's just like when I asked that, I thought your answer might be, well, I'm going to go elk hunting in this state or I'm going to go shoot a mule deer in this state. Not a... 5,000 mile trip. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. I've, I've done some good, I've got some elk hunts in New Mexico. Actually, the first year I went elk hunting in New Mexico, I was going after a bull over 400 inches Jesus. on public land. Wow. I got footage of me. I wasn't able to harvest them, but yeah, I've, I've done elk hunts. So I had a red stag and a black bear the next two items I'm hoping to harvest. Wow. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, let me uh, be the first to wish you good luck this upcoming season on on all those trips, and and maybe you can hop back on the uh, podcast again to uh, uh, share some more success from this upcoming season. All right, sounds good. 
And there you have it. Huge shout out to Michael, man. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and share those awesome success stories with us. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Exodus, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Ozonics, Hunter Safety Systems, man. Uh, Guys, please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen and download all of these podcasts, man. Keep an eye out for some some additional content coming through the Sportsman's Nation uh, in September. Uh, we got one for sure. Uh, we got another one maybe. And, uh, man, I'm just really excited where all this is going. If you haven't already, please go to uh, iTunes and leave a review. Then, while you're on the Internet, go to Facebook and like not only the Sportsman's Nation, but Nine Finger Chronicles. Then go to Instagram and do the same thing. Sportsman's Nation, Nine Finger Chronicles, like, follow, comment. Um, It's a community, you know, uh, especially on the Nine Finger Chronicles. I do a lot of community type work. Uh, What I mean by that is I ask questions. I'm interactive with all the people. I like to know what you guys have to say because you know, I like to know what's going on and what gear to use. So all that, all that, all that. And then what else? I think that's it. That's where I'm going to leave it. Oh, if you haven't had the opportunity, go buy the nine finger nation t-shirt at bustedrack.com. It will have money that is generated by your purchase. And that a portion of that money will go to the QDMA. I'm going to be donating uh, some of that money to the QDMA. So that's a reason to buy that t-shirt. Other than that, have a good week, be safe. And if you're going to be in a tree, our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us to please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.